everybody or good afternoon everybody whenever it is that you get your podcast fix my name is Derek Smith and this is the truth or Derek show thank you for joining us once again on episode two uh thanks again for joining us on episode one a lot of positive feedback from last week we'll get into that in a second um we have a lot of fun for you today we have fun by the spoonful and uh obviously some serious as well as the uh, we're going to be talking with the great Kirk Nurmi, a brilliant legal mind who uh, was the lead defense attorney for Jody Arias, and we'll get into that in a second as well, uh, what happened there. So yes, we have lots to get to today, but uh, you know, before we get to anything, obviously, you know, we got to pay some bills over here. Uh, today's show is brought to you by www.podstars.net. Get ready to take your podcasting career to the next level with www.podstars.net. Podstars is a talented and passionate community that will give you the opportunity to interview top professionals from a variety of industries where they will share their insights and experiences with your audience. Plus, everyone will have access to the exclusive celebrity catalog featuring some of the best in the business, both new and established. It is also free to join. As a member of Podstars, you can choose from the catalog of celebrities to interview on your podcast. If interested, for an additional monthly fee of only $8.99 a month, you can upgrade to the community plan. A completely different and exciting catalog full of some of the best experts and professionals in their fields. As well as access to everybody in the whole Podstars universe. It is a great way to invest in your podcast as you will save time and money by being able to book guests from one platform with an expansive catalog that is constantly being added to. So why wait? Join www.podstars.net now and start exploring all that they have to offer. You will not want to miss out on this amazing opportunity to elevate your podcasting career and be a part of the exciting community. Yes, so obviously head over to www.podstars.net. Again, thank you everybody for joining us last week. Lots of positive feedback. More, more so, <laughs> more so positive feedback for Mister Schiffer, and not so much for me because, boy, howdy, did I! <laughs> I had no idea Sam Roberts had some such loyal fans. And just looking through some of it now, and uh, must be dealt with. Said, "Wow, Derek, you have horrible taste in music." Sam Roberts is a classic band for over twenty years. They put on a dynamite show, and they have an excellent catalog. Another one here, the the real Dimitri C says, <laughs> "F you, Derek. Are you really making fun of Sam Roberts uh, at the same time that you're singing? Um, <laughs> at the same time you're doing Taylor Swift karaoke? Yes. <laughs> so yes, obviously I stepped in it a little bit there. Uh, a lot of positive feedback for uh, Mr. Schiffer, but one that spoke out in general, one that stuck out in general. Hi, Derek. I am a woman in my sixties." I had always assumed defense attorneys were scumbags because of the way they are portrayed on TV and in the news. However, after listening to Joshua Schiffer, I have a whole new respect for the other side of the law and how the system works. I'm now open-minded, and that was a great interview. 
And that was from somebody D in um, South Bend, Indiana. Well, thank you, D from South Bend, Indiana. I'm hoping, uh, hope you enjoyed today's show as well. I'd love to throw in some Indiana humor there, but uh, I'm not entirely familiar with that part of the country. Now what? We got a bunch of stuff to get through today, but I really have to clear off, you know the old saying, I have to clear off today's meaningless stack of paperwork to make room for tomorrow's meaningless stack of paperwork. But uh, we had a whole bunch of research and stuff that we did before the first show, and then obviously a lot of feedback from last week. So today will just be a clearing episode before we get to the great Kirk Nurmi. Again, if you're not entirely familiar with the Jody Arias case, at the time of the murder, uh, she was convicted of killing Travis Alexander. Alexander sustained 27 stab wounds, a slit throat, and a single gunshot wound to the forehead. Uh, Jody Arias testified that uh, she killed him in self-defense, but nevertheless, she was convicted by the jury of first-degree murder. Uh, During the sentencing phase, the jury did deadlock on the death penalty option, and Arias was thus sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. And it was a very famous case. Alexander's death and the subsequent investigation and trial received widespread media attention in the United States. I had no idea how how long that went on for, but uh, we'll get into that a little bit later with with her attorney, Mr. Nurmi. Again, dynamite guy and a brilliant legal mind. What else do we have here to get through today? So some of the initially, okay, we got through, <laughs> we got through all my negative feedbacks from Sam Roberts. Again, if you listen back, I didn't say anything bad about Sam Roberts. I was just surprised that they, they spent so much time talking about it. Like I, I mentioned before that I was an aspiring DJ when I was younger and I loved, um, I, you know, if you had have given me some recordings of uh, Mampy Swift back to back with Kenny Ken with MC Skivity and the great MC Navigator, I'll listen to it all day long. But if you throw me a hundred plus hours of podcasting talking about it, I'm not so sure. But again, maybe I stand corrected. I told you I'm going to get you guys the name of that and I'll listen to it myself and maybe I can play some clips. And again, I've, I've mentioned before I've missed the vote on a lot of stuff. Maybe this is like the, the Joe Rogan experience. Maybe this is the best show ever. And we're all missing out on something. Yeah, so tons of positive feedback on Schiffer. Thank you guys for listening to that. I know that one went long. Today's, I'm going to try to keep it a little bit shorter, but you know, you, you don't really want to cut anybody off when they get rolling. One of the in- initial questions was from when I was on, I was a guest on a show before. It was actually funny was when I was on uh, on the show before because like I have a bunch of papers here. I take some notes and stuff, and then you take a sip of water from time to time because when you're running your mouth, as I do, your throat gets dry. And I just remember I had flipped through my book once or twice, and I had taken some notes and a few sips of water, and the guy hosting the show was like, Jesus Christ, you know how much editing it's going to take to clean this up? And I was like, clean what up? I was like, if you want me to talk, I'm going to get thirsty. And if you want me to sound intelligent, I'm going to have to write something down. But uh, in that particular show I was on, we went on and then somebody wrote in when I was doing my research for this about why uh, why do you guys hate Tom Brady so much? And it's actually, it, it goes back to the beginning for me. Because uh, obviously, you know, his last couple of years, there's, there's been a lot of nonsense with the, the court cases and the cheating and the lip reading and the deflating balls and destroying his phone for evidence and skirting the grand jury and taking the suspension and all that. Again, I could go on about Tom Brady all day long. If you actually go back uh, to when he came in, I believe it was uh, 2001, 2002, obviously took everything by storm. But uh, you see, I am from the North. 
So a lot of people will tell you, depending on where they live, like uh, the Sunday ticket, a lot of those deluxe cable packages uh, weren't that available back then or they, they weren't affordable. So I would say from like until like 2005, 2006, it was like you basically had to watch whatever game was on. You got lucky with some primetime games. They, they'd be good ones. But your Sunday afternoons was always something regional. So because the the Patriots are from up north and they're in the the same division with the the Jets and the Bills, we were just force fed that. So especially after the the first or second year, it was every single time there was a Patriots game on, it, that was the one that we were forced to watch on television. So the the initial dislike for Brady came with how boring that football was and I'm sure if you're a Brady fan, you'll go, "Whoa, you know, well, he was the goat and this is this and he's a cerebral assassin a little shout out to triple h there if you were actually like force fed to watch the games as i were and and my whole football watching community we all couldn't stand it but it was the slowest most basic form of football that you've ever seen my dad had the greatest greatest term for it he used to call it like it was chip and putt every single drive was like 10 or 11 minutes and it would be a field goal or it would be a touchdown and then you know, the other team would get the ball and do their thing, and then the Pats would get it back, and then it was that chip and putt and run clock and just as many plays as possible, 15, 16-play drives that would end up with three points. And there, there was very little excitement. All these games were finishing 13 to 10, 13 to 7. I mean, the, the Super Bowl where they, um, where they beat the Rams, I think the final score in that one, I don't have it in front of me, was like 13 to 7. But that was just, that was that style of football. And again, it was productive. I mean, you know, outside of the alleged cheating, he did pretty well for himself in his career. But again, if you go, if you look back to some of those and it would just, it would come on and like, and then you had these other stuff like Michael Vick, for example, not a very great quarterback in the beginning, but the excitement of those games, because that was kind of the, the, the evolution of sports, especially football with running quarterbacks and stuff was like, you didn't know what it was going to do. And it was kind of like edgy or seat sort of thing. And it was like, if you were lucky enough to get a a, Fal- or, um, a Falcons game, and then after that you'd get a, a New England game, and it would be, well, there's a four-yard run up the middle. Oh, there's a three-yard uh, completion across the middle. Oh, here's a four-yard completion across the middle. First down. Now, that took me 10 seconds to say, but if you were watching it on TV, it would take about three or four minutes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that goes back to answer your question about why we're not big uh, Brady people over here. but. Um, you know, good for him. I guess things are going well. Not great for him now. He just got divorced, but I'm sure he's out there burning it up with the ladies. There's nothing wrong with uh, with Brady's social life, I'm sure. I know in the promo I was doing Tom, Tom, and Tom, so I'll polish that off. I um, It was a while ago. I don't remember exactly when he passed away, but uh, I know uh, Tom Sizemore. He died of a brain aneurysm in the springtime. Now, shortly before that, it was really weird. I guess we were, uh, me and uh, the rest of the Podstars gang, we're, we're just messing around on Twitter, you know, messaging people, just doing stuff. And uh, we reached out to Tom Sizemore and to uh, Christopher McDonald, uh, as you guys uh, might know, he's the legendary bad guy, Shooter McGavin. So uh, just in doing that and like, one of our meetings and whatever we were doing uh, shortly after I got uh, two calls at the same time. One of them was from some number in LA and the other one actually said Tom Sizemore. 
because I had emailed his agent. I guess he sent it right over. So I was thinking, there's no way. So I answered it, and he was like, uh, you know who this is. <laughs> Sorry, I know you guys hate it when I do the voices. He said, uh, you know who this is. And I said, uh, the phone says Tom Sizemore, but that can't be right. And he's like, oh, it's right. So I said, oh, my God, man. And you know what? It's caught me so off guard because I told you, uh, you know, I'm relatively good at meeting with people and all that sort of thing. But there's just sometimes, you know, you just got to be mentally prepared for it. And this one, I just wasn't. I was like, you know, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm a big fan. You have an amazing career. And he was like, oh, you know, thank you. And again, I was kind of at a loss. So I just spit out, um, tell me, uh, tell me about your favorite movie. You know, tell me what just an amazing Hollywood Tom Sizemore story. He's like, oh, I got a story for you. <laughs> so uh, he started talking about Saving Private Ryan, which, you know, arguably, I would say it's the best war movie ever made. Just an amazing all-around movie in general. And then he just started talking about, because, I mean, this guy's been in a ton of movies, TV shows, everything. Just everything he touched was great. Big Tom Sizemore fan. I was really dead, sad that he that he passed away that quickly. Because uh, he was interested in the whole Podstars thing. And I would have loved to talk to him or just heard him talk to somebody else and all that because he had a really good voice for podcasting or for radio. And uh, yeah, he was talking about uh, the way uh, Tom Hanks, with, you know, we've always called him here America's male sweetheart because he just is. Tom Hanks, another guy, everything he touches is incredible. He said that, you know, they worked closely with that, but he said uh, Hanks worked with everybody like that, like close with the table reads and the director and working on every scene. like. Because he was saying some of those scenes, they just took forever to film. And it wasn't like uh, Hanks ever showed up. And he was like in a hustle to get things over with. And then, uh, you know, we brought up some of his other movies and he went back to Private Ryan. And he said, he goes, he goes, and I'll say for a fact, the only reason that movie was as good as it was is because Tom Hanks was involved with it. Again, he said he's worked on some other projects. I was trying to get a little bit more information out of him, but it was like, I wasn't trying to grill him. But he said, you know, some other stuff, it's like, they have this lot rented for seven days or 10 days, or you have the extras for X amount of time, or it's a budgetary reason for anything like that. He goes, when you work with a guy like Tom Hanks, he said, you know, the, all those reels go out the window. He goes, you're going to get the best possible movie come out of it. And I, I just said, yeah, absolutely. He just said for that. I mean, if you look at the Tom Hanks stuff between the, the Forrest Gump and that and big and the burbs, it's just, somebody sent me one of his, I think him and Kevin Bacon with the whole list of movies that they've been in. And I was like, Wow, there isn't a bad one. So a lot of love for Tom Hanks, and a lot of love for uh, Tom Sizemore. And Sizemore were just saying the whole time about uh, a big Tom Hanks love festival. So if you weren't sure uh, that he was America's male sweetheart beforehand, you're definitely going to, Tom Sizemore says so. That's the bottom line, because Tom Sizemore said so. Although I know when I was talking with uh, Mr. Kirk Nermy, they were saying that uh, Joshua Schiffer, our guest from last week, is uh, America's male sweetheart. So <laughs> maybe we'll have to put up a poll. Joshua Schiffer versus Tom Hanks. <laughs> yeah, remember shortly, it was uh, that day. It was it was that day. I think it was right around the time when this whole, uh, when we were supposed to get to some news last week about uh, Bud Light. Because uh, that happened to be my beer of choice. But I have never in my life seen like a downturn in business like that like for such a stupid reason like just an advertising you know screw up which again to me i i can't understand why i know like uh kid rock kind of 
got a lot of this going and all that with like shooting cases of Bud Light and stuff just because of uh, someone that they sent something to that they wanted to advertise it on social media, which again is silly because it's like, you know, I have an Android phone, which I love, but you know, if I, (laughs) if I found out Donald Trump had an Android, it was like, it wouldn't bother me. I wouldn't take it outside and shoot it. But uh, yeah, I guess some people took that really seriously because I think at last count, it was just under a billion dollars or maybe a billion dollars they figure in revenue they've uh, they've lost just because of some weird, uh, I guess, different decisions they made, which for me, again, there was probably a room full of uh, advertising ding-dongs that were just trying this and the, uh, the other thing where if it was me, you just... You know, the the first one that comes to mind, I remember there was always those Heineken commercials with Neil Patrick Harris that were on for years. And he would just say something funny and say, oh, I'm going to go drink this over there. And Heineken seems to be doing pretty well. So I don't know with advertising if it's that smart to think outside the box. Like just got Tom Hanks. Sorry, that just came to me. Bud Light's got to go down or over to L.A., grab Tom Hanks, give him whatever he wants. And just have them do something with the Bud Light. And I guarantee you that turns this whole thing around. Like a whole America's sweetheart loves Bud Light sort of thing. Right now, I'm telling you, it's gold. Write that down, Bud Light. Which I actually, I, I almost, I had a chance to um, talk to it. I think it was around, it was around the time when that whole shitstorm was going on. I can't, I think I was at Longo's. And um, it's a grocery store up here. And I was buying a, a whole bunch of Bud Light. Let's just say I was having a party that, but I, I guess I had five or six six packs of it. And this guy comes over there like, like one of these fresh faced used car salesman types. And he's like, "Well, that's a really good choice there, Bud." <laughs> and I was like, "Well, thank you." I said, "You know, I like it." He wasn't wearing a company shirt or anything like that. But then he pulled out a card, and he's like, uh, "Well, you know, that's glad to hear that you like it. I, I work for Bud Light." And I was like, "Oh man, people really." <laughs> People really hate you right now. And he's like, oh, no, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's a bump in the road and everything's going to turn out all right. And I said, turn out, <laughs> turn out all right. I said, aren't you guys out about a billion dollars? And he goes, oh, but you know what? It's uh, a lot of the alternative, <laughs> a lot of the alternative choices out there. You know, a lot of the, the money still kind of winds down uh, our way. And I, I just said to him, I said, you know what? That is not the way it works, you know? I said, you guys could learn something from Disney right now because I'll tell you right, I'll tell you what, if Foghorn Leghorn was running a deficit, Mickey Mouse would not jump in there and bail him out. What Mickey Mouse would do is march his ass right down to KFC, figure that out, and start you know recouping some of your money back. You don't just uh, you don't just count on um, Donald Duck to come in and save the day. So that's what I was saying earlier that uh, maybe the people at Bud Light can learn a lesson from Disney because I'll tell you what, Disney, uh, they know how to make money. See, whatever. So back to the mailbag. There was one from last week, and then they said, um, "Why is there an echo in your voice?" I actually don't notice it. Uh, I have to wear headphones when I do this, but I do have like a slight ringing in my ears, like but from the uh, the loud music and uh, being a badass teenager. But initially, when I did, I did a sound check with an engineering type person just to make sure that I got these recordings right, which. I know last week's audio, there was a little bit of an echo when I was talking with Mr. Schiffer, but uh, that problem has been fixed. The problem with my voice is it's very bassy. So like you have to turn uh, the bass down and the treble up and the bassy voice. I'll get into it again when we start telling some more Podstar stories, but uh, that's part of the reason that guy from Sons of Anarchy was so pissed off at me at one of the Comic-Cons. 
I guess, uh, you know, like I said, eight out of 10 people uh, usually kind of like me right off the bat, but the uh, the two that don't <laughs> really don't. <laughs> so yeah, when I was doing the the voice test, again, if you take the, the voice out of it, like the voice you're hearing now, I always think that I, I sound like, I don't know, tinny, but they were like, no, no, you know, it, it comes across likable. So I was like, oh, you know, I'll take likable. Uh, but again, they, they, they do a thing where they turn the, the reverb a little bit up. So initially it was like, hey, everybody, how's it going? Uh, welcome to the Truth of Derek show. Uh, <laughs> today's show is brought to you by www.podstars.net and by the uh, rally series coming down to the Coliseum Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Come down and eat deep fried food, smoke cigarettes inside and get a 16-ounce Bud Light for $1.99. Tom Hanks is America's male sweetheart. <laughs> but yeah, so the ultimate voice that you're hearing now was it was actually, from an engineer, the, the, best, uh, the best I could have hoped for. If you're just wondering why there's a little bit of a chang in it, or a little bit of a woo that's why. The fascinating world of podcasting. I know there's one last thing that I had to get to before we get to the great Kirk Nermy. And again, you guys are going to love this interview. The initial, um, the initial research I was doing from the show, uh, I don't know if I talked about this last week, but like 20 or 30% of the, the feedback that came in on it was like food related. And like, oh, oh, what's your favorite fast food restaurant? Make your ultimate combo from three different places. Uh, um, you know, what do you make at home? What is a quick uh, recipe? What is a long recipe? Ask your guests about food. I was actually going to do that with Schiffer last week, but we sort of ran out of time. For me, I'll just go back to some of the stuff that I learned through COVID because I, I was actually a relatively good cook before that, you know, as we all learned to do a lot of crap around the house. The one thing I learned how to make during COVID was pizza. And for anybody out there who thinks it's even remotely complicated, it's not, especially if you have like, I know you you can mix it by hand, but it's a, it's a heck of a lot easier to, if you have like a bread maker, <laughs> everyone always looks at my counter and sees a bread maker. They're like, that's useless. And I was like, dude, I use my bread maker like two or three times a week. I absolutely love it. Yeah, making pizza. There's five ingredients. It's um, three and a half cups of flour, a cup and a half of warm water. I can't emphasize enough. A lot of the recipes don't say to use warm water, but do. You know, a teaspoon of salt, a teaspoon of sugar, and yeast. Just like a handful of yeast, maybe three or four tablespoons. You mix the whole thing up. You let it sit for an hour. It'll raise up. Like, again, it's the easiest thing ever to make. Because a lot of times, you know, if you're making, if you're ordering pizza with all this extras and all that sort of thing, a lot of pizza orders can be 30, 40, 45 bucks. So not just for the quality of how delicious the pizza is, because I'm going to give you guys another, another hint. Don't tell anybody. But you can make a pizza at home, a bomb one, for like less than $8. But the trick is, and again, this is just between us, use like ranch sauce or Caesar dressing or even like olive oil or, um, you know, Greek, uh, Greek salad dressing. Use a white or oil-based sauce on the bottom. It doesn't matter if you're using pepperoni, cheese, chicken, uh, steak. It doesn't matter what you make with it. Because I'm telling you right now, this came through a trial and error thing. Because I made, you know, a hundred pizzas easily before I had this whole thing down. And I have tried every single topping side by side. And everything and every single taste test through, you know, the children to the elderly. The white sauce won almost every single time. So yeah, if you just mix those ingredients together... Let it rise for an hour, roll it out, use some sort of ranch, Caesar, whatever for a base, uh, you know, put your cheese on, then your toppings, 420 degrees oven for between 24 and 27 minutes. And it's going to blow your mind because again, it comes out just as good, if not better than some of the best pizza you've ever had. One of the other ones was uh, 
what's your favorite mac and cheese recipe? Actually, some really good ones came out of there, but two completely different, but absolutely stunning ones. But I think that one of them, you kind of have to have an instant pot or like just a regular pot on the stove and you got to be able to pay attention to it. And the other one, you can just Google. It's called Mac and Jeezy. It was a recipe Terry Crews put up. Uh, my wife found it and she just started doing it for potlucks for holidays and all that sort of thing. And it's one of those things. It doesn't matter how much you make. It's the first thing gone. And again, that one's a, it's a, a little pricier because you got to put sour cream and um, cottage cheese. But if you're a mac and cheese person, check out Mac and Jeezy from Terry Crews. First one that comes up on uh, on Google. Now, mine was from, uh, we love this other uh, chef, Recipe Tin Eats. Uh, she has a lot of Asian recipes. I think she lives in Australia. And then she passed along one again. That you, I think you could do it on the stovetop, but it's easier in the Instant Pot. But it's like measured out. So like a pound of pasta, you need uh, four cups of water to cook it in. But the hack here is they use chicken broth, like uh, better than bouillon or whatever. But uh, just when you heat up the water ahead of time, use four cups of chicken broth. And you actually cook the noodles in the chicken broth. So as soon as that's done, pretty much al dente. You give it a stir. They called for evaporated milk, but I just use regular milk, a couple handfuls of whatever cheese you want, mix in some parm, old cheddar, just something with a bite, some Swiss. And you could even add in at that last step a bunch of chopped broccoli because the hot pasta, you're just going to put it on low until the whole thing thickens up. And it's just absolutely game changer. It's a really cheap recipe to make. I mean, all those ingredients for that would be less than five bucks where even if you go buy a box of Kraft Dinner now, it's like two fifty. I remember when I was younger, you used to be able to get a box of Kraft Dinner for like 59 cents. And even like the no-name brand or the the yellow no-name brand or like the Ital Pasta brand was like 29 cents. And now it's just like the mac and cheese is for millionaires. They're the regular people. We've lost touch with it. So uh, yeah, definitely do yourself a favor. Again, if you're interested, reach out to me somehow and I can actually send you the full recipe. But uh, you'll never go back, especially with, especially with the pizza and the two mac and cheese recipes. Again, something quick and easy to make uh, either for your dinner, for the family, or especially for a potluck thing, because it's one of those pains in the ass that sometimes people bring like pulled pork, which I like, to like a family gathering, but nobody else eats it. So then everyone looks over like, do you want to take it home? I was like, I don't need eight pounds of pulled pork at home. It's going to go bad. As usual, I've rattled on for too long, so... We will have to get to the rest of it next week, but uh, now, I'm telling you right now, you're in for a treat. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Kirk Nurmi. All right. Our next guest needs no introduction. He is a brilliant legal mind, uh, the author of several books, including Trapped with Miss Arius. Uh, He's a cancer survivor. He's a weight loss guru, and he's so much more. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Kirk Nurmi to the show. Derek, thank you so much for having me, and... uh, I'm excited to talk with you here today. Oh, that's awesome, man. Thank you for making the time for it. Um, I know when I, when I asked you to come on the show, I did want to talk about a bunch of different stuff, but there is a huge elephant in the room, which big crazy elephant, if you will, that I would like to get out of the way. So if we get a chance to talk, you know, moving down the road, we can kind of skip past this and talk about some other stuff. Some other stuff. Sure. Okay, so, I mean, a lot of people know a a lot of different things about this, but where I'm most curious about it is how it started, because if you read a lot of your stuff or a lot of your bio and stuff, initially you didn't want this case, and you fought like hell, I guess, to either pass it off or just, you know, not for lack of interest, but just that uh, it wasn't for you. And the only reason I'm guessing that it landed on your desk 
was because you were at the top of your game. So how exactly, I, I guess the, the long question done short is how exactly did this land on your desk? Sure. Well, back in 2009, I was a uh, deputy public defender with the Maricopa County Public Defender's Office. I was working in the death penalty unit. Uh, as fate would have it, um, you know, my team, a defense team, as always two attorneys, a mitigation specialist, an investigator, um, had just had finished a case a few weeks prior. And each team held about two or three cases at that point in time. And we were kind of next up, the, the, the unlock of the draw, if you will. And so ultimately, you know, the public defender's office in the Capitol Unit, first of all, they're all murders because that's the only charge that is death penalty eligible in Arizona and pretty much mm -hmm. every state. And so it, it was really just a matter of um, fate, if you will, you know, um, I still remember the the uh, just be, basically you're assigned. I mean, unless you have a good reason to say no, a public defender cannot reject a case. And at that point in time, you know, Jody Arias's name was foreign to me. This is 2009. A lot of people can't believe that. But if you think back to 2009, this was four years before her trial. Most people didn't know who she was. She had given a, a CBS 48 Hours interview, Picture Perfect, this documentary. There'd been a few other interviews, but there really wasn't much. So there was no reason to grab my briefcase and run away. In hindsight, that's what I should have done, right? But um, ultimately, uh, you know, I was assigned that case as a public defender. Uh, as time went on, when I still worked for the public defender's office, I had gone through another capital trial. And the capital trial, whether it's Jody Arias, high profile in the news, or whether it's obscure like this case was, nobody in the courtroom off a cold case, um, you know, they still take several months and they're still very, very difficult, very wearing on one's life. And after that second trial, I kind of had a sense of where Jody's case was going because I'd had it for several months and I got it signed in 2009. I was her second attorney. And so, Sorry, uh, you know, I decided uh, the first one withdrew from conflict. She was arrested in 2008. That lawyer had the case for about a year. It was a few months away from trial when uh, that counsel was allowed to withdraw from the case. Okay. Um, okay. Going back, going back to my story then, um, you know, once I had the case for a while, I realized kind of where it was going. I decided to leave the public defender's office because I didn't want to do death penalty work anymore. It was very taxing. I wanted a simpler practice, if you will, you know, DUIs, uh, things of that nature. And uh, in a very uncustomary move, uh, the judge who was presiding over the case when I advised her that I was leaving the public defender's office uh, wanted me to file a motion to withdraw. Very uncustomary. And ultimately, of course, spoiler alert, right? She denied that motion. She denied uh, several motions to that effect uh, over the years. And uh, that, Derek, is why I call my book Trapped with Miss Arias, because ultimately it was a case that I was assigned as a public defender and wanted to leave behind at the public defender's office. I mean, they had already assigned counsel. Everything was good to go. But this judge decided that I needed to take the case. And matter of fact, she appointed lawyers on behalf of Miss Arias to argue 
uh, to assert Miss Arias's desire that uh, that I remain as her counsel. And so, again, spoiler alert: they won. And uh, you know, back then I thought, okay, well, the case is going to go to trial in 2011, but uh, it didn't go to trial till January of 2013. And uh, of course, it didn't really end until 2015 when Miss Arias was sentenced to life. So now that you realize you're stuck with it, um, did you know it was going to be a nightmare at that time? Like, uh, I'm just curious, like, if you're the the main attorney, do you guys have investigators? Do you go with what the police report says? Do you go with what uh, Miss Arias says? Like, in the beginning, how much information do you have before you, like, you know, around the time where you get stuck with this and you know you have to move forward? Well, when I'm assigned the when I, when I'm assigned the case initially, it's an empty folder. It's coming from other counsel. I don't know anything about the case other than ultimately what I saw when I watched that CBS special. When I went online and looked at that special, mm-hmm. that was all I really knew about the case, and that was after it had been assigned to me. Um, in a death penalty case, a capital defense attorney is tasked with investigating the case. Uh, from brand new, start over new, not just accept the state's version of events, what have you. Obviously, um, client uh, input is is important in that regard as well. It, it gets a little technical, probably more than, than we want to get into here. But uh, you, you have to go back and investigate the case and um, move forward with, with a defense. How do you investigate the case? Well, I mean, that's going to depend on this. This I'm not going to get into the specifics of the Arias case, but depending on, you know, the logistics of any case, you're looking at uh, witnesses, you're interviewing witnesses, you're interviewing potential witnesses. Like, for example, when I say investigate the case, it's not just the guilt phase. A capital attorney is required to look at someone's life from conception to the day they're being sentenced. So investigating the case also means looking into the client's life as well, because in a capital case, guilt is almost a foregone conclusion. Guilt to trial is almost a foregone conclusion. Yeah. And the real job number one of a capital defense attorney is to save their client's life. So that's this, like, um, in general, you're looking at either life or the death penalty or, or like in that particular case, you know, during your, you're doing your investigation and all that sort of thing. Can you take one look at it? I mean, obviously, you know the law really well. And just say, like, this isn't going to go well. Like, this is not a good case for me. Well, look, there's no good cases in, 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 the, in the capital unit. Because, like no. I say, the state doesn't charge the death penalty unless guilt is pretty much a foregone conclusion. Right. Uh, did you know it was going to be televised beforehand? Ultimately, no. I mean, before the trial began, yes. I mean, ultimately, there was pretrial litigation uh, surrounding uh, that issue, and and ultimately, we knew that they prevailed. So I knew that come January second, the day of opening statements, that there would be cameras. You get a say in that, or no? Uh, like I said a minute ago, it was it was litigated. Uh, we made the argument to not have the cameras in the courtroom, but ultimately the the news media prevailed in that regard. No kidding. Uh, you know, it's just, it's one of those things where like, 
I mean, it was a while ago. I didn't watch that much uh, Accord TV and all that sort of thing, but I just remember uh, my mother-in-law had her um, had her hip replaced. So we had we were there all the time, you know, helping her out with this. That, and that was during that trial. So she would watch that almost every day, and then I would watch it. And that's, you know, when I eventually got reacquainted with you through through social media and stuff like that, and I would talk about, oh yeah, no, it's Kirk Nimmy that was the the lawyer, and I'd look at the pictures, like the, it was unrecognizable <laughs> the difference of what you looked like. I mean, in a good way, obviously, because it would be bad if it was the other way around. But well, it certainly it certainly wasn't a, a a linear process, and it's interesting. You know, you mentioned cameras and everything. You know, and you asked me if I knew it was going to be televised, but it's interesting because. You know, the trial became not just a matter of television, but it really became a worldwide sensation. I, I, I say I have a one-man show called Overcoming Jody Arias that I haven't done in a few years. But one of the things I say in there is that, you know, I became cast in the most popular uh, reality show of 2013, and that was the state of Arizona versus Jody Arias because people were glued to it, and not just again, not just in the United States, but you know. Uh, in in North America and and all over the world, you know, we'd get uh, emails and et cetera from from Australia and what have you. So yeah, it was it became a worldwide sensation. Yeah, that was incredible. Again, the fact that I was aware of it, and you know, I was you know, thirty at the time, not exactly watching trials and stuff on TV, but the fact that I remember that one pretty vividly means that everybody was watching. Yeah, no doubt now, about it. Now, from what I know, usually in these cases or just in court cases in general, you guys normally do not want uh, the person to take the stand. Is that right? Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that, you know, um, there's probably if there was a general rule, that would probably be it. But, you know, ultimately, it, it always depends on the defendant. It depends on the case and it's the defendant's choice. All the attorney can do is advise. They can't control. And so, you know, you can give advice to a client. There might be circumstances which you think it's a good idea for a client to testify. You might think there's circumstances when it's a bad idea to testify. So it all really depends on the case. But the default, if you will, the default setting on that is for a client, to, a defendant to remain silent. So I'm guessing in this case you told her not to, and it was just... Uh, filibuster like no one's ever seen. Well, that is the uh, that is the uh, area of attorney client privilege. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I got you. So I, I've read I like a lot of the book. And speaking of attorney client privilege, like how did you figure? Like, I, and I, I ask all the lawyers I talk to this: How do you figure out what you can and can't talk about? Like, is that something that you, you guys learn in law school, or is this something you learn along the way? Well, I mean, it's like anything. It's a it's a combination of both. You know, Miss Arias, uh, if you've read the book, you know, she gave some interviews. She told some lies about me, lies I thought that put myself and my family uh, in jeopardy because we were getting a lot of death threats at that time. Right. Um, the state bar of Arizona right. took issue with it. They wanted to suspend me for four years. Um, I asked to be disbarred because at that point in time and jumping ahead in the, the story a little bit, but uh, I had my cancer diagnosis and I knew right away that it was from the stress of practicing law and more specifically serving as lead counsel for uh, Miss Arias. So 
Um, what I really wanted was to be out of the practice of law, to not have that safety net to uh, make some meaningful changes in my life. Because if, if I accepted a four-year suspension or I won and uh, you know did not receive any suspension at all or a lesser suspension, um, I think I would have been back in the same old plan. And, and I didn't want to. I made a promise to myself when I got that cancer diagnosis and I made the choice to go into the chemo chair that I wouldn't live my remaining days the way I had my prior days. Yeah, no doubt. That is, uh, you know, as harsh a wake up call as there is, but you know what? It's, it's weird when I, I was putting my questions together, I do, I really didn't want to bring up this bard because it's such an ugly word. And, uh, I know a lot of times when we comment on stuff and different uh, trials and stuff like that, some people kind of jump in and they say, Oh, you know, why are you listening to him? He was disbarred. And I usually always stick up for you because I say, the fact that he's a great lawyer and a great legal mind and all that it kind of has nothing to do with that because a lot of these people don't know that all of this, um, the cancer and the trial and the stress and suspensions and everything all kind of came at the same time. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, I, I say what I explain in, in, in my one of my other books, Defend Your Greatness, is that, that, that I needed that change. I knew that, you know, if I was lucky enough to, to survive cancer. I didn't want to live my remaining days the way I had my prior days. And had I won, had I been victorious with the bar in any way, shape, or form, or had I, I accepted the four-year suspension, it would have been a matter of looking at the clock, and it probably would have prevented meaning, the meaningful change that I really wanted in my life. So um, sometimes, you know, as the old saying goes, you just have to jump and wait for the net to appear. And that's the that's the choice I made. And if people want to uh, disparage me because of it or, or not listen to what I have to say. That's, that's their issue, not mine. Yeah, no, I want to talk about the, the transformation in a minute and just uh, finishing off with some of the, the area stuff is, um, a weird question, but were you afraid of her at any time? No. Cause you see, like, uh, I know you and I were commenting a video about a month ago where the lawyer just bent over and one of the guys, uh, handcuffed and everything just kind of like walloped him on the side of the head. And I would think you know more about, uh, the area's crime than anybody. I like in the, in the back of your head, I, I'd be surprised if you weren't sitting with her or meeting with her or talking with her, that it didn't you know, occur to you that this, this violent person could just go off at any minute. <laughs> Well, that that was that was never a, a, a concern of mine. Oh, you're braver than I am. <laughs> I would be thinking nothing but that. Well, by the time you get to be a capital oh, wow. defense attorney, you've been around the block, shall we say? What uh, you know, you, you were saying you had just gotten off a case. Was that like? It's got to be hard you know, for a lawyer, just be like you said, you don't really get a say and you don't really know what's coming down the pipe where it's just, you know, you finish off one case and then all of a sudden another one comes by and then, you know, hopefully like, how long did you work on the, the, you know, just say the, the previous case, when did that start to finish to area start to finish? Like, do you really get to flex your legal talent when you're kind of working that kind of the, the legal system where it seems like the, these trials take forever? Um, I, I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, you, when you have a death penalty case, I think it take, it is to me, um, the highest form of litigation because, 
Um, it, it, it requires so much experience and knowledge on the attorney's part that has to be properly applied because should somebody go be sentenced to death, um, it will be automatically reviewed by the U.S. Supreme Court and it will go through years worth of habeas review, what have you. So um, it is a very stressful, uh, high-level field of, of practice, if you will. And I do think just by its nature then, it does allow you to flex your legal muscle if, that, okay. if that's what you're, what you're asking. Yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of the death penalty, uh, you've said a lot of times, and we've educated a, a lot of people, that uh, the death penalty is far more expensive than sending somebody to jail for life. Yes, no doubt about it. Why is that? Um, there, there's lots of reasons. I mean, the conditions of confinement are one, uh, the amount of appeals that are built in. I mean, one of, and, and I know a lot of people say, well, just do away with the appeals. Right. And, and, but that's not what our eighth amendment to the United States constitution says. And the way the Supreme court has laid out the process is that there are many levels of review that take place when somebody's sentenced to death. And about 50% of those cases are overturned at the sentencing phase because the attorney did not do their proper work as it relates to the sentencing phase. So, um, and, and we wouldn't want it any other way. You know, there's cases out of Texas and other places where people have been wrongly uh, executed. Ray Crone here in Arizona sat on death row for over 10 years before he was exonerated. There's been many a case that talks about that. So we're not interested in, you know, speed in the process. We're interested in getting it right and to make sure that 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 penalty that is is irreversible is not ever wrongly applied. So um, ultimately, that's why it takes so long, because of those appeals and because of the conditions of confinement, mostly the appeals. That's fascinating because, um, like you said a little bit earlier, usually these, uh, these cases don't get to that point where it's deciding between life or the death penalty, kind of until the whole thing is understood and everybody knows what's happening. But a 50% turnover rate is a lot. <laughs> well, you know, you think about it. Somebody has to investigate someone's life from conception to the day that they're sentenced. That is a tall order, if you will, right? And it is easy for an attorney to, who is not, for example, completely a specialist in that field. Like I got to the point when I was with the public defender's office, the death penalty work was all I did. And there was a real reason for that is because you had to have, keep the education up. You had to understand autopsies. You had to understand psychological maladies. You had to understand a lot of different things to really and travel and look into these people's lives. When we were talking about investigation earlier, I mean, that could mean going back and talking to somebody's second grade teacher, right? Because that's the kind of information that you need to present. And when you don't do that, attorneys try to cut corners or they're maybe not fully versed in the death penalty, that can result in a, in a sentencing being overturned. Did you choose that kind of severe type of law on purpose or was it just kind of something that you gravitated to? Well, you know, I had, when I came out of law school in 2000, I did so with the idea that I wanted to be a public defender because I believed in the Sixth Amendment and believed that people should receive zealous representation, whether they were having a public defender or 
you know, uh, paying a high priced attorney, paying paying Josh Schiffer millions of dollars to, uh, you know, Brand's to be, to be retained. And, and, you know, I, I listened, by the way, I listened to his his interview and, you, you know, you called him America's lawyer. But to me, to me, Derek, he's America's sweetheart. OK, I know. let's I, you know, he's more than just America's that. lawyers. He's America's sweetheart. But, um, you know, if you can't afford uh, Josh Schiffer or what have you, you know, you should be able to get uh, zealous representation. And after years of that, you know, I kind of started getting burned out. I had a lot of clients, a lot of turnover. You know, you could hardly keep track of who your clients were, trial after trial. And at this point in time, the death penalty unit in Maricopa County was expanding and in many ways, it seemed like a simpler form of practice in the sense that I only had two or three clients. A lot of people that were in that unit hadn't been to trial for 10, 15 years. And so that sounded like a great sounded like a great option for me. And part of my upbringing would be that, you know, if you have a good job, meaning a job with a steady paycheck and benefits, you don't quit. I was raised yeah. by grandparents who grew up yeah. in the depression right so instead of taking that leap and going into private practice i made the decision okay i'm going to kind of go towards the capital unit of the public defender's office and after a couple of years having had two trials unlike uh, colleagues who went decades without going to trial um, that's when i decided really it was it was time to time to move on and hopefully leave miss arius's case behind but again we know how that <laughs> turned out I'm almost done with that, I promise. But uh, sorry, you just brought up two good things. So go, go, go working for the county and kind of going the way that you did, you, you obviously, you probably turned down a lot of money, I would imagine. Well, you know, there's always the promise of money and private practice and what have you. Um, but there were, there were no huge offers. I can't say people were pulling up a dump truck to uh, <laughs> offer me. I always thought if I left the public defender's office, I would go uh, fend for myself, if you will. And for, it, it never really truly worked out that way. Which actually, you know, had the, the cancer thing not happened, and maybe if you weren't burned out, you were famous at that point. I would imagine, you know, rolling that into a high-priced uh, defense career would have been easy. But, you, you know, you took a, I mean, aside from the cancer, you took the honorable road. Well, you know, ultimate, ultimately, I when, when I when I chose that road is because I wanted I made happiness my beacon, not the money. And there are a lot of lawyers who are making a, a lot of money who aren't happy at all. I see it all the time. I see it throughout the profession. Um, it's there's there's I say there's no happy lawyers. There's a few happy lawyers but not many. And I wanted happiness to be my beacon, not simply making a bunch of money and running out the clock till I could retire. So uh, speaking about the, uh, the repression and all that kind of craziness with lawyer, did you have a drug or alcohol problem? I, I never did. No. Really? Never did. Uh, I guess, you know, I was I was very conscious of that reality. And maybe if you look back at me, you know, and you say it's a different person, uh, you know, maybe food was my drug. Food was my <laughs> booze, if you will. Um, you know, I got 
you know, a lot of us grew up in this system that I think seems harmless when we're kids, but um, can be really damaging to our health and our weight going forward like this. You get a good report card, you get taken out for ice cream or pizza party or whatever, right? Yeah, of course. And that kind of reward, yeah. that kind of reward eating. So when you're stressed out and you go, oh my God, you know, uh, I had a long week, blah, blah, blah. Then it's easy to justify, well, I deserve this food, this pizza or this cheeseburger or what have you that makes me feel good. And and that's kind of, um, I guess, the satiation I, I found, if you will. I mean, I've gone back up and down on my weight in lives, but that was certainly part of it, that, I, that, that concept. It's actually kind of more impressive when you talk about and when you read the book and all that with all the stuff that you were going through then that you didn't have a problem like. I, I just, that's fascinating because uh, I had just assumed, again, <laughs> because of the way you looked when you were on campus, you would have at least been drinking a lot. <laughs> no, n- not, not at all. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I, I, you know, try, believe it or not, even back then I was exercising all the time, but it goes back to this idea that you can't, uh, you know, out exercise a bad diet. I was playing tennis three, four times a week before the trial began. I was working out. Um, so, and, and, you know, if you recall between trials after the, there was a hung jury on the first sentencing, I lost about 80 pounds on, on my own. So my first book was actually a weight loss book that kind of documented how I lost those 80 pounds. And that was before, of course, bef- about a year before the, the cancer diagnosis and, and chemotherapy ravaged my body. No, no, I know. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about all that because uh, I, am, I am fascinated just about the workout routine and stuff because, um, I mean, it's not like a, I'm a bigger guy myself and I've done the, the exercise. Like a, my wife always says, you know, I got like my relationship gut because when we met, I was going to the gym three times a week and this, that, and the other thing. And then, you know, you kind of get happy and you get complacent and you put the weight on. But as you get older, you cannot take weight off where obviously you're the exception to the rule because, again, it feels like an insult. But anybody who's listening has to go YouTube uh, one of uh, Mr. Nermy's meltdowns in court and then look at him now. Again, it's unrecognizable. Well, well, let, let, me, let me offer this bit of tidbit to you, Derek, and... Um, to a lot of people out there, you said, you know, at this age, you can't lose weight. You just impose a limitation upon yourself. That's not true. True. Because I've got over I've got over a decade on you and I lost over 50 pounds. Amazing. Uh, so just to go back. So this whole thing is winding up. How did you find out you had cancer? Yeah, and so Miss Aries was sentenced in April of 2015, um, and at that point in time, you know, I I had basically shut down my practice. It was all Jody Arias, you know, up until that point. A few other clients, but pretty much all Miss Arias. And, you know, Phoenix, it's like, you know, it's 105 today, what have you. I'd obviously been working a lot, so... Um, I decided in that summer to spend a lot of time going on bucket list trips, right? So I was a big baseball fan. We went to Cooperstown. Uh, we went to Kansas City where the Negro League Hall of Fame was. We took a few other trips. And as that was winding down, we were about ready to take our last trip of the summer before uh, September and, and business starts picking up back in here. 
and I noticed a lump under my armpit. And, you know, I had been feeling great. I'd kept the weight off. I was probably a few pounds lighter than I am now, actually, back in 2015. And uh, ultimately, uh, you know, once I came back from that final trip to Seattle, I had a uh, appointment with the doctor. And, and within a week or so, I uh, was in surgery having that lymph node removed. And um, maybe about a week later, I learned that I had stage 3 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Shit. Just like that. Yeah, the scary thing was how great I felt. I mean, uh, you know, I like I say, we were ta- I was taking time off. I was exercising. I was running pretty much every day. Um, you know, when I was outside when I could before it got too hot. And, you know, the scary thing was to feel that good and then realize that the lymph node was actually the third, you know, one to, to or the first one to make its appearance. But I had one. Uh, near my heart. I had a, a tumor growing near my heart. So, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's it's scary stuff in that regard. But um, good news is it worked out. Yeah, it's even stranger that you went on a bucket list trip before you found out you had cancer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really wanted to take advantage of that, of that time in the summer. My wife had quit her job because of some of the threats. So, um, we kind of made some of those, those bucket list trips. And then, um, then yes, we've learned out the cancer diagnosis in, you know, August to September of, uh, 2015. Yeah. You mentioned that twice this time about the death threats and all that. Like, um, I guess with the age of technology and stuff, I guess, uh, you know, people were able to find out where you lived or it was where you worked or it was kind of like, you know, did you ever run into anybody on the street that was like, hey, you know, you uh, I'm going to get you that sort of thing. Not really on the street. I mean, uh, you know, I got scowls and things at that point in time. You know, I was pretty, as as you mentioned a couple of times, pretty distinct. I was bigger. I had the shaved head. Um, I was on TV in the Phoenix area. Like when I turn on the TV in the morning at five in the morning, I'd be on the news. Oh. I come home, I'd be on oh. the news. You know, um, it was almost inescapable for I'd be at the gym and I'd be on the TV. Right. And it was almost uh, inescapable. The threats basically came, you know, I didn't have a lot of um, social media at the time. But one of the things that the Maricopa County Court required was that you put your email address and your uh, office phone number on the pleadings, any pleading that you filed. So it became pretty easy for people to uh, email me and or call the office constantly with their threats or their thoughts or what, what have you. That sounds like a nightmare. It really, it really was. I mean, that's why I use that word trapped with Miss Arias because it really was. And it was a time I can't say, listen, you know, I don't, I don't believe this woman's defense. I don't want to be here. Um, Obviously, you know, I must've been doing a good enough job in, in, you know, presenting that defense that people were, irritated and uh yeah they that's when the threats came i mean it happened uh to my co-counsel as well i mean they found out where her kids went to grade school um and that's kind of the day and age we're in because think about it now even in um you know the delphi case a judge gets assigned and somebody posts youtube videos of their children right so um, that's kind of the dark the dark side of where we're at in social media and and true crime as well, right? Because 
that can affect cases. I wrote a, an article years ago for the New York Daily News talking about this, this idea that, you know, listen, I'm all for open courtrooms and open courthouses, but there has to be measures on it because, you know, people in that system need to be able to operate safely. It cannot become the Thunderdome. It can't become the age of public stoning. So um, I think that's a real important um, safeguard, if you will, that, that we, we need in a lot of these cases. And you know what? I think you're a perfect example of what you just said and why there should be something done about that because you didn't want this case. It was forced on you. You worked your ass on it. You you did your from A to Z homework. You don't drink. You don't do drugs. You were exercising. You gave it 100%. It went the way it did. And then in the end, you get death threats. Like, how do you win in a situation where, you know, where your kids go to school or something or where you have to put your email in? I mean, that's crazy to me. Yeah, the ultimate answer is you can't, right? I mean, you know, it goes back to, you know, believing in that Sixth Amendment, the reason I became a public defender in the first place. And ultimately, too, you know, you've got a duty to the court. You know that ultimately someone or two, actually, in in, in the case of Miss Arias, a death penalty case, someone's going to have to be her lawyer. And ultimately, uh, fate casts that job upon me and... Um, it was my job to kind of stay in that foxhole and do that job. Unfortunately, it it lasted a lot longer than I thought it would. I mean, it was 2015 <laughs> before it was finally done, right? I was assigned the case in August of 2009. She didn't get sentenced until April 2015. That's crazy. Um, so that is That's a crazy. yeah, that is that is crazy, and there are various reasons for that that I detail in the book. But you know, ultimately, um, you know that is. That was my duty, if you will. And, you know, recently, Derek, I got to a point where I where I really, you know, I, I'd rather live in a world where Jody Arias didn't kill Travis Alexander. I think a lot, most of us would like to live in that world, Absolutely. and then maybe none of us would know who, jo- who Jody Arias was. But I got to the point where, because of the changes that instigated in me, both physical, spiritual, metaphysical, whatever you want to say, that ultimately I became grateful that, that I was that attorney and that, that I got cancer because ultimately um, the, it changed my life in a, in a different way. And I'm living in a different way than I, I wouldn't have been living um, had things worked out differently. Yeah. You know, and that's I, a hard I, place to get to. That's a hard place I, to get to, but I got there. Yeah. So I did, I want to talk about a little bit about that. So you find out you have stage three, mel- or sorry, um, uh, stage three cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's yeah. lymphoma. Sorry. Um, so just like, uh, you know, are you, you're still dealing with the fallout from the, the trial and all this sort of thing. So obviously that's stress that you don't need. What is the first thing that you kind of, uh, you know, is it not like, uh, accepting that you're going to die? That's obviously not it. You obviously chose to fight it. So what happens, you know, you find out you get cancer on a Monday morning. What happens on Tuesday morning? Right. Well, one of the things that I really felt like I had to contemplate when I got the notice that that I had cancer when I talked to the surgeon is that I needed to decide what I wanted to do. And I guess maybe whether it was depression or what have you, um, but I began to wonder and ultimately contemplate, you know, I'm, I'm in my 
late 40s at the time that I'm doing this, was it worth it? I mean, was it worth it to try to fight the cancer? I say that because, you know, my career in many ways was in shambles. My reputation was in shambles because of what I've been through with Miss Arias and what people thought of me and people thought that I perpetrated this defense. Based on what Miss Arias said, for some reason, people believed what Miss Arias said about me. Things of that nature, right? And so they're really getting a person like, was the life that I'd be fighting for in the chemo chair really worth living? And that's a dark place to go, right? And and I went there thinking, okay, well, maybe I'm just not going to go through chemo. I didn't really want to die, but, you know, I didn't want to make my wife a widow and all those things. But then I realized that if I was going to fight that cancer, that I needed to do so with reasons why I wanted to live, not reasons why I didn't want to die, right? It wasn't so, you know, hey, I wonder who's going to win the next World Series or, you know, the next season a big brother or what have you i'm a big brother maniac but you know well not i shouldn't say maniac because there's a lot of people that are a lot worse than i am but you know that sort of thing so it 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 became you know i needed to find reasons why i wanted to live if i was going to go in that chemo chair and live with the ravages that chemotherapy was going to impart upon my body and that's when it goes back derek to what we were saying earlier about um you know making happiness my beacon and making that promise to myself that if I was fortunate enough to survive cancer, that I wasn't going to live my remaining years the the way I had my prior. And that's why when I was going through all this and when I was, I was writing my book while I was going through chemotherapy, because I thought if I don't survive cancer, I want to make sure I impose truth upon the lies that Miss Arias told about me and, and, and other lies as well. Right. So that kind of came a driving force in my life and also, you know, make keeping that promise to myself um, was the reason that I asked for disbarment because I knew I wasn't going to be happy if I was just running out the clock waiting to go back to the practice of law. I wanted out. I needed change and cancer helped guide me towards that change and and a lot of other things. But um, it was kind of the. Uh, first brick to fall, if you will. Um, and, and that's kind of, that was kind of my process. Um, it was really connecting to the reasons I wanted to live, not the reasons I didn't want to die. That is unbelievable. Well, I was going to say, you, you, you heard her here first, Mr. Nermy, uh, beat cancer so he could watch big brother. <laughs> no, 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 no. Although it's are you, it's a good season so far this year. <laughs> I'll have to check it out. <laughs> but um, so I, the whole cancer thing happens, and um, obviously you beat it. Or did you beat it? You're in remission now, or it's gone? Uh, I am actually cancer free. So uh, 2015 was the diagnosis. I started chemo, uh, and I was done by 2000 February 2016. Uh, I was done with chemotherapy and I was in remission at that point in time. Five years later, that's when you are considered cancer-free. So um, I'm blessed now to say that I am cancer-free. Congratulations, man. That's awesome. What was, uh, you know what? I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not familiar with really anyone who's gone through chemotherapy. What is that like? I don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it wasn't a blast. It was not a blast. Uh, you know, listen, there's there's all kinds of different chemos. Uh, you know, um, 
I went through something called R-CHOP therapy, uh, six rounds of chemo. Uh, not a blast. It, uh, you know, they're basically injecting poison in your body that's stronger than the, the poison that has infested your body with the idea of killing that. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I don't know how to describe what it's like, if you will, other than to say I don't, I don't recommend it. And it, and it was a, certainly a struggle. And I know this has been a struggle for a lot of people, and I just – certainly more than anything feel blessed to come out the other end when I know there's other people that aren't so fortunate. No, it's, it's interesting too, because, um, after I talked to Schiffer and obviously uh, talking to you, you can tell that you're a good person and that you were practicing law for the right reasons was, uh, I got, I got a lot of feedback with Schiff and it was all positive, but one of them particularly struck out and it was a a woman left a comment and she was in her sixties and said, um, you know, she wasn't that familiar with defense attorneys in general, just kind of the reputation that you get from TV and movies, magazines and newspapers that, you know, the bad person has a bad lawyer and that sort of thing. And then after when she was talking to him and she left the comment there, she was like, uh, the funniest part of it was when Schiffer said, if I didn't stop drinking, I'd be dead. <laughs> but, uh, you know, because I, I plan to, uh, you know, have a lot of these conversations and maybe have you back on in a while and just because you get to talk to you and you get to hear these stories and hear how hard you work. And again, that line of working with people that are on uh, death row or versus 25 years, like the, to me, that sounds like soul sucking work. That sounds like a nightmare. Well, it, it, it can be tough. I mean, you know, because no matter what somebody has done, they're still a human being. Likewise, I mean, as a human being, they have a family, uh, they have brothers, sisters, parents, etc. And I think that a lot of people do have a misconception of like defense attorneys are just trying to get somebody off and they're just looking for a way to get somebody out of jail, what have you. And to me, one of the things I always say is that and, and you know, this comes up at cocktail parties as soon as you become a defense attorney. Right. It's really about the Constitution, not the not the client. And we don't have the best justice system in the world if we don't have defense attorneys who will stand up and defend those constitutional rights. They may not always believe there's, you know, I've, I, I have people, I did a, a documentary on uh, Oxygen a while back called In Defense Of. And it was this great four-part series that had all these attorneys that had taken on these famous, famous cases. And... Um, you know, you go through the stress of what it's like and everything. And, and, and I heard somebody respond to that saying, well, I thought defense attorneys had to believe in their clients so they wouldn't take the case. And that's just not true. And I think that's a big misconception out there, right, that people have. And that breeds this idea that these defense attorneys are these sleazeballs running around trying to get criminals off of their case and what we're really doing. And think about, you know, people, the, the Karen Reed situation, right, I mean, where she might have been set up for murdering uh, her police officer boyfriend in Boston. You don't have zealous representation misread a woman who probably is innocent, at least in my estimation, might very well go to prison. And, and it would be easy for the government to put people in prison if we didn't have zealous advocates fighting for the individual who wants to keep their butt out of prison. Yeah, like you were just saying with the the people when they think of defense attorneys and we were laughing about the lawyers that were like, I'll take any case for $99. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there can be some of that, right? I mean... I guess I guess student loans are real. That's that's never how I practice. I guess that's one of the blessings of being 
uh, in the public defender's office is that it wasn't about uh, a retainer or anything else. I was getting the same salary, whether it was G- Joe Smith or Jody Arias. It didn't, yeah. it didn't matter. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting with the, the Karen Reed thing because it's like – and it's it's you know it's it's one of the things that I think social media is good for because you you really do get to see some different sides of it because if you look at the facts in the Karen Reed case when I first looked at it I assumed guilty when I looked at the facts in the YNW Melly case I first looked at it and I assumed guilty and it's not until you see that a lot of you know smarter people rather than people that are just shooting their mouths off when you do get to see both sides of the argument, you do get to see a defensive uh, aspect of it and an offensive uh, aspect of it where you can actually make your own decision rather than reading three or four you know, facts, you know, whether true or not, and just saying, okay, yeah, I've made my decision. Yeah, I mean, that is that is something that can happen in the court of public opinion, right? It, we're, we, are, we have such saturation in our world that we can see a little bit and make decisions, draw conclusions, what have you, without really ingesting the full picture and making that decision. Because it's impossible to do that um, with with every single thing that pops up in our lives, be it a news story or a, a, a case or what have you. So, uh, Speaking of cases, the one yesterday, and again, I was talking with Franz Borghardt, with uh, Henry Ruggs, with the vehicular manslaughter, I guess they got him with, and uh, it was only a yes. sense, uh, three to ten sense. years, and I'm hearing now that that is kind of uh, for a first offense. That's kind of an average sentence, which again I was surprising because I, again I, I remember when that happened and I saw the video and all this sort of thing, and I thought you know that would be at least ten. Yeah, you know, every state is every state is going to have a different uh, parameter on that. I think in Arizona, it probably would have been a little stiffer. The prosecutors probably would have been um, harder on that, if you will. And I didn't follow that case closely. I know the the basics of it, but yeah, I mean, to me, in my mind, and, and I think Franz is right when he talks about that plea and that negotiation, what have you. But I still would have expected a tougher sentence. Certainly, if I was sitting on the bench, um, Mr. Ruggs would probably got closer to 10 years. Yeah, we're on the same page there. So um, (laughs) one of the things I had to bring up that we were joking about a little while ago was um, it was around the time when Lori Vallow was on trial. And I think it was Shipper or somebody wrote down, I wonder if she's going to get love letters. And then you wrote, oh, she's going to get love letters. Uh, with, with the, you're obviously talking from experience. Did Jody Arias get like a ton of uh, suitors for lack of well, you know, I, I can only I can only speak to getting some of the overflow and without getting into too much detail. But certainly, um, it is not um, unexpected. I mean, we think about uh, Ted Bundy was getting love letters and Ted Bundy, as a matter of fact, if you recall, he proposed to a woman on the witness stand and, uh, had a marriage created at a witness stand. So, uh, you know, I remember back when I was in, in, in law school, I remember, uh, you, you know, joking with America's sweetheart, Josh Schiffer about this, you know, how the, these guys in, in, in jail wind up with, you know, three or four girlfriends because they just somehow have an ability to work that. And there's just something about that, especially in a high profile setting that draws people, whether it's the notoriety of the person, 
whether it's just physical attractiveness, I don't know. I bet I, I wouldn't be surprised if Alec Murdoch was getting was getting love letters, what have you. So yeah, it's 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 an interesting phenomenon. What makes a person want to reach out and when they feel lonely, they want that connection. Um, but but it does happen quite frequently. Well, it, it was you and our America's sweetheart Schiffer who actually turned me on to that because I I just googled it afterwards. So of course now I get all these creepy ads and stuff, but. Uh... Yeah, there's a whole bunch of websites for like a dollar ninety nine that you can just go and I guess they show you some pictures of people and they can sign up from online and do their thing and you can actually the 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 internet has expedited the process of writing love letters to criminals. Yes, yes, it has. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure these days are going to be FaceTime and what have you. So, um, yeah, it's it's certainly. Uh, not an uncommon phenomenon. Not an uncommon phenomenon, and probably one that that won't stop. Uh, so I did, the other thing I wanted to ask was because I guess you're lucky because again you're great legal mind and you still get to be on TV and still get to talk about this stuff. But do you miss being a lawyer? Um, hell no. <laughs> Is that was that emphatic enough for you? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just I, I, I don't. I I don't look. It was part of my life. I there were parts of it I enjoyed. There were parts of it I didn't. Uh, and and now I've moved on, and there's no regrets. There's not a time when I'm thinking, well, oh, crap. I wish I would have hung on to my law license or what have you. Um, not at all. You know, I'm very very happy to be. Uh, you know, acting and writing and, and modeling and doing all these other things that are just that I find to be really fun as opposed to getting up. You know, you know, you, it's like I talk about, you know, everybody hates Mondays. So you don't hate Mondays. You hate your job. Right. Oh, yeah. And. I don't wake up on Monday going, oh, crap, right? I don't worry about hump day or woohoo Friday. You know, I've been released, you know. That's not that's not the way I live. I just um, I find happiness and fun and, and do things that bring me joy. Well, I know you have a pool. That must be nice when it's 105 degrees. I know. I, I actually, I have a pool, too, and we get a short summer here in Canada, so I'm enjoying that thoroughly myself. Well, I tell you, sometimes in Arizona it gets too hot to even want to walk to the pool. So yeah, I've, I've, I've heard. Um, so let's just uh, go to weight loss for a little bit. I know that we are running out of time sure. here, but uh, oh, we can talk for as long as you want. Let let me make sure I get more airtime than Josh Schiffer. <laughs> he went on for like an hour thirty. You might remember that. I didn't get that many words in. I'm not talking enough. I see. All right, Derek. <laughs> let me fill a let me filibuster for a few minutes, please. No, uh, uh, so go yeah, ahead. So like you were saying, like again, I've lost weight. I've you know, I don't want to say plateaued, but I, I've gone down. I'm 275 pounds now, but I'm six one, so I can wear it well. But um, you know, if you were to give like a, a, a you know, you obviously you already wrote a book about it, but if you were to give advice to somebody like me, what would it be? Well, the, the, I guess the the question would be, you know, do you want to lose weight? I would say yes and no. I don't mind putting in the work. Again, I've done this when I, I want to say 15 years, 17 years ago, like the best shape of my life. You know, I had gotten kind of fat in my early 20s and then uh, 
you know, just woke up one day, I got the gym membership. I went four days a week, never missed a day, this, that, and the other thing. Like, you know what I mean? It was more of a state of mind. And I think it was, uh, you know, I actually wanting to lose weight. It was just like, um, a few years ago I started doing yoga and it was just one of those things that I couldn't kind of not go without. And then, you know, you skip a week or two and then it's like, well, I haven't done yoga in four years. Well, that didn't answer my question, Derek. <laughs> Let me, do I need to put you under oath and get you on the witness yeah. stand here? Um, I I think I do. You know what? I, I think it's it's one of those things I want to do it slowly. I, I don't want to fully dedicate myself to it. I'd like to like partially dedicate myself. So that's a no. Uh, so that's a no. Uh, because I'm sorry, if, Your, if, I'm sorry, Your if, Honor. I didn't hear the question. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Right. Be- but but the the point the point of my questions is that, you know, the first key to weight loss is, if you will, is that if you want it, not because your doctor says you're overweight, not because you don't fit within the you know height and weight chart, not because your partner says you should lose weight. The question ultimately is. If you want to lose weight for you and only you. And I say that it sounds, you know, obvious, like the most common act of of common sense. But how many times do we really motivate our weight loss on somebody else or how we're going to look to somebody else or whether we're going to be more attractive? It's all external validation, right? Um, so the point being, if you have, if you want to lose weight for you, that is the precursor to doing it. Do you have to plan on being skinny forever, or do you think it's one of those things where you kind of want to get back into the best shape of your life, and then you can kind of cheat? That's sort of like, if you look at just say we talk about, I talk about Cinnabon all the time. It's my favorite thing. I'm, it's probably something that I would have to cut down on a little bit had I, I want to get healthy, but, you know, I'm not getting rid of it forever. Well, listen, the, the, question, the question is, again, if you wanted to be in shape and in that kind of fitness level, then that would become more important than Cinnabon. That's kind of the point I'm making. Does that make sense? It does. I've I've actually, I've seen your workout. Your workouts are insane. How old are you? Oh, I'm in my, I'm in my fifties. I mean, I'm, I'm AARP eligible, you know? Um, Yes, I could probably uh, get a discount for riding a bus and at at the movies and all that. But that's what I'm talking about. Like it's a choice because so If I want to, you know, and it's ultimate act of self-love, self-care, taking care of your of your body, your physicality. I think there's some spiritual uh, repercussions or or that go along with that or benefits, I should say, rather than repercussions that go along with that. So if I'm to a point like when I was going through when I was working with radical body transformations and I was looking to change my body for myself uh, you know, an ultimate act of self-love. I wanted that more than an Cinnabon. I mean, I was, or it was, I, I'm, I've never been a, a Cinnabon addict anyway, but, but whatever it might be, 
I wanted that fitness and my body to be in that better shape more than I wanted that Cinnabon. So that's where you've got to be. And that's where it gets to the idea of do you want to lose weight? When I wrote my first weight loss book, one of the things I did is I pretty much created my own program because then it took a third party out of it. I couldn't say I joined this gym and it didn't work out. I couldn't say I joined this weight loss plan and it didn't work out. It was me. You were on the hook. I invested in it and I lost 80 pounds doing that because I was invested in it and because I wanted it for me. So basically you're saying the first step is mental. I know because I, I know I, I, I've quit smoking, I want to say three times, but once I lasted for four years. And even up to that, I wouldn't try because I knew I wasn't ready. And then there was just one day when I was like, today is the day. And of course, I lasted four years and then had a bad day and started smoking again. But is dieting the, the same thing? You kind of have to wrap your mind around it before you can wrap your body around it? Well, I think may, maybe so. But part of the reason, part of what you th I think you need to do when we talk about things like this and smoking maybe in the same ballpark, I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. But part of the part of what I would what I would say to you if I was coaching you because I've done a little bit of life coaching in the past and you were getting ready to take that cigarette I would say what was that cigarette filling in you you know what was that giving you that was filling in that bad day what emotions were you trying to mask by having that cigarette you were feeling bad stuff you didn't want to feel it anymore so you subverted it into that cigarette and that's why I talk about food as well, like the stress, or we talk about lawyers with drinking problems, etc. You're diverting feelings or emotion into that substance, whether it's tobacco, booze, food, whatever, it's all pretty much the same, right? So that's really where it begins. It's not just mental, it's it's metaphysical, it's spiritual, it's 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 a it's a healing uh connection, if you will. Well, yeah, that's what I figured. It was cigarettes were for stress, alcohol was for depression. But uh, you know what? Well, I, I I don't know that that's true. I could maybe it could be for for certain people, but but the point is, you need to investigate why you went down that road. Doesn't matter why anybody else does. This is why I talk about you, because it doesn't matter what anybody else does. Regards to your smoking, your eating, whatever it is. It's regards to what you think about it. See, and that's why I think that your book, uh, your weight loss book, might have a step above some of the other ones because it's not like a, eat this and do this and all that. Uh, you know, anybody can do that. You can get that off the internet for free. Where yours kind of goes a little bit more into, like you were just saying, you know, why are you going to do it? Before, how are you going to do it? Figure out why you want to do it. That's well, and that and that's what I put not really so much in my weight loss book, but one of the things I did when I when I got done with cancer, the treatment, I took all the lessons I learned while battling the infamy associated with Jody Arias and battling cancer, and I put it in my book called Defend Your Greatness, which is my favorite book of all the books I've written. It's the last book I published. I don't know. I'm, I might publish again. I don't know. I've been thinking about it. But the point is that one of the things in there talks about self-care and not masking and that feelings are there to be felt. And so we can mask those things with, with other substances, like I said earlier, food, alcohol, tobacco, whatever it might be. 
And part of what I'm getting at to you, Derek, is to just sit there and say, you talk about that first step of losing weight. It's really wanting to for yourself because other things can derail you. If you want to lose weight because your partner says you need to lose 20 pounds and that partner goes away, that so does the need to lose 20 pounds or so does the motivation or you're sneaking food in or what have you, right? But if you really want to do it yourself, that Cinnabon counter doesn't become a pull. It's like, no, I want to lose weight. That's not for me right now. Maybe it will be down the road, but that's not for me right now because I want this. And I'm making myself a priority long-term as opposed to short-term. That's fascinating. I know Cinnabon's taking a beating in this conversation, but um, I do have a few questions for uh, for you from our Scottish connection. It's Adrienne. It's Adrienne. All right. Um, Hello, Adrienne. <laughs> you were just talking about uh, your books. She wrote... Uh, Kirk has written some amazing books. Which one is your favorite and why? Defend Your Greatness is my favorite because the feedback I've gotten, you know, when you write a book, it's kind of one of those things where you cast it off and you don't always get a lot of uh, uh, feedback and what have you. People read it and and what, what have you, whatever effect it has, you don't always know it. But I've certainly talked to a lot of people that have had a positive effect in that book. And to me, it's kind of just such a guide mark for living a happier life. And I think, you know, I know that there's a lot of people out there that are unhappy. And one of the things I tell people in my one-man show or I discuss a little bit in Defend Your Greatness is if I can overcome the infamy associated with Jody Arias and then cancer on the heels of that, you can overcome things in your life. And defending your greatness is one of those one of those things. And that talks about making yourself a priority, making self-love a priority. So um, that is my favorite book. And it's available on Audible, too, Derek. So you have no excuse if you don't want to sit down and read for hours. You pull it up on Audible, and, and there you go. I was going to give you a plug. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. No, I'm just saying. I'm not saying you need you just. I just feel like. You know, you're, you're, you're struggling here with some things, and, and that's just my recommendation for you. No, it's funny. Uh, Ann and Doug Bremner sent me their book, and it's great. But I'm only about halfway yeah. through it. And I, I haven't just been able to get back because it's like, you know what I mean? I, like, I want to go out in the backyard, and I, I hop in the pool. I read in the pool. I do all that sort of thing and work on my phone and all that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's just like finding time to read. And that's why I think the, uh, the Audible thing and podcasting in general is brilliant because you can kind of do it while you're doing anything. Yeah. Uh, another question. Um, Kirk, you were a massive part of the Jody Arias. Oh, here we go with Arias again. Oh, well, I didn't think Adrian would let the Arias thing go. Uh, she's a true crime uh, junkie. She is. Uh, when you look back, would you have changed anything you did? And if you could well, say anything I, I, to Jody right now, what would it be? <laughs> wow. Um, so I'm going to pass on the second question, Adrian. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm going to pass. I'm going to, I'm, well, you know, I always say that the, the thing I would have done if I known where it was, where it was going to be, as I, I jokingly say, I would have, uh, grabbed my beef briefcase and run out of the public defender's office before that file made its way into my hand. So, um, you know that that's that's probably it. But you know, if if I might, Derek, might I ask Adrian a question? Because I know she's going to be listening. Yeah. yeah. 
why doesn't she have a podcast? She has all these great questions. Why doesn't It's Adrian have a podcast? Uh, it, it, she left me mm. a message. She left me a message when she was giving the questions for you, and she thinks people can't understand her because she has a really heavy Scottish accent. Where I understood her fine, but up here in Canada, a lot of people kind of talk that uh, you know that part of Europe, uh, East Coast sort of accent. So I don't know. I I would love to hear the podcast too, but I, I'll ask her if I can play the the voicemail on the podcast, and we'll see. Maybe we can have a vote to see if we can get her involved. Uh, all right. Well, you know, or start her own. Hey, you know what? Don't argue for your own limitations. Yeah, exactly. Just like the weight loss. I have a podcast, even if you think that's right. Too hard. She asked two more questions for her. Well, one two part question. Okay. Uh, what has been the most fascinating case that you've given analysis on so far? And which one are you looking forward to uh, coming up this year? Fascinating that I've come up so far. I found, uh, not necessarily legally, um, but I found Depp v. Heard to be very fascinating as a social, um, as a moment of social zeitgeist. I mean, it was really flung into pop culture and really captured the attention and just the dynamics of how that played out, I think. Um, in the Me Too movement was was fascinating uh, to me. Um, to answer the second part of the question, um, I think the case that fascinates me the most is what we talked about earlier is Karen Reed. Um, because I know as a defense attorney, a former defense attorney, one of the hardest cases are those where you really believe in your client's innocence. And you have a real viable claim for that. And those don't happen very often. And uh, I think certainly Miss um, Reed's defense attorney, his name eludes me now, um, probably feels that way uh, about uh, Miss Reed's case. And so I think that um, how that plays out and what comes out during that trial is going to be fascinating. It's something I'm certainly looking forward to uh, discussing a lot. I know you just said former defense attorney, and I'm kind of like, no, once a defense attorney, always a defense attorney. A lot of people think that, but I, t- I take pride in the former, so I can, uh, you know, reignite some uh, common sense and, and those kind of things into my head. Well, Kirk Nermy, I wanted to thank you so much, man. This is amazing. You're an amazing dude. I just, smart, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't eat Cinnabon, just... It, it's almost a shame that you still don't practice the law because just what I've learned today and what I've learned from reading your books is that like you're a good guy and you should be involved with the legal system in some way. But I'll definitely have a, a whole new, uh, not that I didn't respect you already, but a whole new respect for you when I see you on TV moving forward. Well, I, I appreciate that. I think, uh, you know, I like the uh, bit of interaction I have uh, with the legal system. And like I say uh, earlier, my emphatic hell no to, to practicing law again. I, I enjoy, you know, acting and modeling and, and, and doing things like that. So and, and, and doing true crime commentary. So um, while I appreciate the sentiment, um, making happiness a priority and putting myself first uh, means that uh, I'm, I'm happily away from law. Ladies but I'm going to say one more thing. Can I say one more thing? I got to. I'm going to throw out because we're talking about this. I know Adrian wants to make a podcast. 
I will be on her podcast if she makes a podcast. I'll, I'll let her know. There you go. Because so, I know she's going to listen. I know. Oh, let's see if she listens to this. That's what you got to do. Let's see if she listens oh, to this. Oh, it's a test. And <laughs> it's a test. If she listens all the way to the end, if she doesn't fall asleep while Kirk Nermy's talking, she 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 can have me as a guest on her podcast. Nobody is falling asleep, Kirk Nermy. You rock. His name is Kirk <laughs> on Twitter, <laughs> at Nermy Unchained. Check out his books. They're on Amazon. They're on Audible. Check him out on TV. He usually tells you where he's going to be, whether it's on Court TVs, all over the place. The guy's an absolutely incredible. And Kirk, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for joining. Hey, Derek, thank you for having me, and I, and I enjoyed talking with you today. Excellent. Have a great day. Excellent. Have a great day. You too. Bye.